Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a specific group of individuals that are often neglected when we talk about reentry. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about reentry, we're focused specifically on people coming out of prison, or we focus on people that are coming out of jail. Um, and there's this other group of individuals that we often don't talk about, and that is youth that is involved in the incarceration system or impacted by the justice system. They also experience a, a process of reentry that they must go through. So our topic today will be really getting a better understanding of juvenile justice, reentry, and transition age youth. And we're really going to be talking about how formerly incarcerated young men and women navigate this reentry process and how that experience of incarceration at that youth age impacts their transition into adulthood. So with me today, I have an expert that does a lot of research in this area, and her name is Dr. Laura Abrams. Dr. Abrams has her PhD. She's a professor and the chair of social welfare at UCLA, um, as well as well, just to give you a little bit more context on like her research interest and her experiences, she has examined a lot of experiences of youth in the U.S. justice system through reentry and the transition to adulthood. And right now she's currently pursuing research in the area of youth justice policy, urban youth civic engagement, and the aftermath of youth sentenced to life in prison. So More Life is really grateful to have her on here to share her expertise and to talk about this subject. So thank you, Dr. Abrams, for coming on and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and it's great to meet you. Yes, always. I love that. Um, so. <laughs> Just we're going to jump right into our conversation. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you first is just how did you become involved or passionate about working with juveniles or better wording youth involved in mm -hmm. the criminal justice system? Yeah, well, interesting. You know, the language has changed a lot over the years um, in terms of moving from even the idea of delinquent youth to you know, juvenile justice to now youth who are impacted by the criminal or juvenile legal system. Um, so my my interest started out. I was um, just graduated from college in nineteen in the late eighties, early nineties, and I got uh, my first job at a group home. At that time, um, the it was a group home for girls, and it was a combination of girls who were either uh, runaway or in the child welfare system or who were being adjudicated in the juvenile justice system. Um, back at that time, there was still this idea that um, a youth, a residential treatment center could was the place to kind of rehabilitate young people from all these different backgrounds. Um, and as I was doing this work and I was really passionate about um, young people and kind of seeing their development go in a healthy direction. What I came to realize as a very naive 22-year-old um, was that, you know, the system itself was very broken. And so it wasn't necessarily the girls that needed to be fixed, but the multiple systems that they were involved with were hurting them um, in so many ways. And so um, that kind of sparked my passion to get my master's in social work and later my doctorate after doing years of practice in with urban youth. Um, and then my, my research evolved to bring me back to uh, studying the lives of young people who are in, entangled in, in these various systems, um, including foster care, and, and residential institutions, as well as probation group homes and in prisons too, youth who are in adult prisons. So you have quite a bit of experience, not just mm -hmm. clinically, but also in the research area of, you know, the challenges that these youth are encountering whenever they're being released out of incarceration. Um, yeah. Like that. 
Yeah. So for example, um, like in my, in my work, so as a social worker, I worked with youth transitioning home and then seeing them come back and running away. Um, then when I was a social worker in the public schools in Oakland, I saw a lot of young people go in and out of juvenile detention facilities. Um, and my research, which has been the bulk of my career for the last 25 years, I spent about seven years doing ethnograph ethnography, ethnographic work in um, juvenile justice or youth justice facilities. Um, and then I spent about another 10 years doing work on the reentry experiences of young people coming out of um, the youth justice system. So okay. a bit of time, a bit of time. <laughs> yes, I see, I see. Research uh, takes a lot of time. <laughs> this is one thing I know I have learned that in like grad school, research takes a lot of time. Yeah, I'm, I, as I'm looking back, I'm like, wow, 10 years, okay. <laughs> it goes by pretty quickly though. Yes, then, it does. <laughs> um, but I'm also, I'm wondering, you know, with your clinical experience, your research experience, can you kind of talk to us about the trends that you've seen related to incarceration as it relates to youth, um, just mm -hmm. over, I mean, yeah, your I mean, yeah. So what was interesting for me working from the nineties up till today, um, is kind of having the wisdom of seeing how really the paradigm shifts that we go through in the macro environment and policy do, does impact, you know, how people are treated on, in 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 real life right so we think about social work as you know i teach social work like you're making a difference in the lives of young people in that one-on-one -on -one work but having the wisdom of looking back over the last 25 years i can also see how policies like um trying youth as adults and and the 90s super predator gang enhancements led to this kind of surge in youth incarceration and surge in youth being tried as adults and not being given second chances um, to now to then years and years of advocacy and voices of system impacted people um, trying to scale back those issues and arguing for a different type of paradigm. Um, I think now you know, the developmental crossroads and youth justice has really reached um, a point where that's more normalized to think about youth as young people and their developmental needs. Um, and, and now we're kind of looking at closing down big state facilities. The whole idea of institutional care is being, um, you know, challenged as not a good model. Um, shorter stays, lack of centrality in state youth justice facilities, trying fewer youth as adults. So it's really about shrinking the system impact at this point. Um, you know, as a kind of a testament to this paradigm, um, newer paradigm, um, the recently appointed Liz Ryan to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention as uh, President Biden appointed her. And that's pretty huge because she's been an advocate for shutting down um, youth facilities. So a, a strong advocate for um, for closures. So I think, you know, I don't know where we're going next, but there's certainly been a lot of changes over the last um, 25 years that I could see. Those are a few. Yes. And I'm wondering, as you're talking about that, there are with these changes and, you know, just given the idea of just talking about numbers really quick, mm -hmm. have the numbers decreased? Like, have we seen a change, a significant change in like incarceration rates among youth? Absolutely. So, I mean, the, you know, at the peak of the tough on crime, there might've been 200,000 youth incarcerated in a given year. Now it's about 60,000 at, at any one time. Oh, sorry. Let me, uh, let me edit back. Okay. Yes, absolutely. There's been quite a change, um, in the numbers of youth who are incarcerated, uh, over time. That's really been cut by at least 50% or more. Um, at the height of the tough on crime era, 
you might have seen um, 150,000 or more youth incarcerated on a given day, and now it's more around 60,000, 65,000 um, across the nation that are counted in institutional facilities. Um, how those are counted is a little bit difficult because that doesn't always include youth who were um, maybe sentenced in private placements or um, youth who or whose parents might have put them in placements. Um, and it doesn't always include youth in the foster care placements, but we can see, and this is, gen I mean, this is agreed upon in all trends, um, an incredible shrinking of the system, both in the numbers of youth on probation and um, who are incarcerated. Um, on the other hand, what people consistently point out, which is, um, sobering is that even with the kind of shrinkage if you will of the of the overall numbers um racial disparities are are still have gotten worse so um there's still an overabundance of incarceration for black youth and native youth um in particular and uh, in some states also um hispanic brown latinx youth um, but the, you know, and then what people kind of tend to argue about these statistics is that even though the overall numbers are shrinking, you know, you still see kind of the youth with the most complex needs who are still getting entangled in the system. Um, and that, you know, might include youth with histories of child welfare involvement, um, youth who go from the foster care to prison pipeline. Um, youth of color, LGBTQ plus youth, and uh, kind of also a larger proportion of women entering the system, young women. I think that's important because that was going to be one of my next questions I asked you. Was like, <laughs> yeah. um, what are those specific things that make it or increase the likelihood of someone, you know, having contact with the criminal mm -hmm. justice system? And you've talked about things of just like LGBTQ status, race. Um, class, mm -hmm. poverty, all these yeah. variables, they play a big role into, and I think the way you said it um, just a few seconds ago was, it seems like the individuals with the most complex uh, problems or concerns are still having the most interactions or the contact with the criminal justice system, right? Yeah. So, you know, in, um, in the book that Diane Terry and I published a few years ago called Everyday Desistance, um, which was about youth in LA transitioning into adulthood from the criminal justice, from the juvenile justice system. We identified different pathways into delinquency. Um, and these were more than just demographics, but we were kind of looking at what, what were some of the common ways that youth came into the system and stayed in that system? Because for the most part, youth who have contact with the system, it ends with one, one stint of probation or one arrest, right? So we know that most young people who have contact with the system, which is about 1.2 million um, youth per year, actually, um, it kind of ends there. So why do some people then get on this, you know, if you will, stepping on different... Um, motorized elevators or whatever they're called, the walkways, right? Why do some get on the longer walkway? Um, what we kind of came up with was we saw a pathway definitely in the school to prison pipeline. So in that sense, the life histories involved getting in early trouble in school and having school behavioral difficulties being labeled early on as a bad kid and then kind of internalizing that um that that label which led to early gang involvement and kind of you know that sense of wanting to belong um and that was pretty common more among some of the boys um with you know being labeled um and especially black and latinx boys in the LA public schools um in the the other pathway we saw was really persistent poverty and survival 
needs of families. So youth talked about, you know, they were living in a car and their parents were homeless and their mom or dad was in jail themselves or prison and they had to survive, surviving the streets, selling drugs or stealing as a way to keep their families alive and fed, you know. Um, And then a third way that we saw, which related more to the girls, was um, the foster care running away pattern which goes back to, you know, the work I did when I was coming out of college, you know, was seeing how the young women um, who were either abused or neglected or they're having conflict at home, um, then getting placed in a foster home or group home and, and running. And then in running the streets or running with older people would get, be a co-defendant in a crime or be just picked up simply for being um, AWOL or running away. Yeah. So those are some of, you know, those are the themes that we saw in the data and the the youth we interviewed. I mean, there's more reasons, of course, and nothing is as easy as it's this, that, or the other thing. It's not A, B, or C. Sometimes it's a blend, um, but, you know, you don't see... And I guess what is important to note is you don't see a lot of youth from privileged backgrounds and class privileged backgrounds being entangled into in the system. So underlying it all is this, you know, a sense of is also poverty and um, over surveillance in in communities that are impacted by poverty and racism. I think that was really great, uh, like explaining those pathways of, because that's something like I necessarily didn't know either about, you know, youth and their involvement. And I'm wondering, uh, it just, and if you don't have any information on it, this is cool too, of just how do structural barriers or these kind Mm -hmm. of systematic uh, things play a role into, I guess, even more involvement or those pathways Mm -hmm. into delinquency? Yeah. So, what you know that's a really good question um and i think the structural involvement is is very hard to understand from like a statistical perspective to capture those structures um we were able to capture a lot of those in stories and in life histories um but a good example of a structural barrier is um you know a young person gets kicked out of school is sent to a probation school. Well, at that probation school, there's probation officers. And so any misbehavior or um, skipping school, they're going to be arrested because they're being, you know, surveilled at that school, right? So even just structurally being at a school that's called a probation school, (laughs) your chances of uh, them getting entangled in the system are already a lot higher than someone who's similarly situated in a mainstream school. Um, That's one example. Another, Another big piece is when youth come out of the system and come out of a stint in detention or juvenile incarceration, um, and this has been a big subject of my research on the reentry piece is what are you, you know, what are the structural barriers to being reintegrated into society in a way that's going to promote um, law abiding behavior, right? So to speak. So, for example, a lot of the youth I've interacted with in practice and in my research, you know, they feel like okay, if I'm getting tossed back into my community, well, I have the same friends, I have the same pressures, I have the same neighborhood situation. Um, And yeah, I want to be part of my community, but that's not going to allow me to really um, sustain some of the changes I might have made while I was incarcerated or, you know, away from my family, right? So youth have to like, we have to be able to help youth learn how to, if we want them to succeed in, in the society that and community where they live, um, they need more services in that community, not just taken when they're away or when they're incarcerated. 
um, because some of the changes that they might make therapeutically or even commitments to themselves or motivation, that's all behavioral, but the rubber meets the road, so to speak, when you're put back in a in in front of temptations and old surroundings and old behaviors, right? And that's not really new in terms of theory of change. Like we all, you know, there's a reason that people who are struggling with substance abuse don't go to a bar, <laughs> right? Um, so we don't, you know, generally speaking, to navigate. Uh, reentry takes a lot of will. It takes a lot of will. It takes a lot of strength. And I think we underestimate and put a lot of, we underestimate how hard that is, but also it puts a lot of pressure on a young person who's also trying to balance just their basic developmental needs. And I want to go back to your first example yeah. before I hop onto your second yes. example. <laughs> Your first example, while you were talking about it, reminded me of when I was in middle school and high school and I rode the bus to school and there were alternative kids on my bus. So in my middle school and by my high school, there was a alternative school right behind it. And these students, they rode the bus with us and they were labeled as what you said, the bad kids or mm -hmm. the kids who couldn't sustain in a mainstream school. And so they would drop us off first at the mainstream school, and then they would drop them off next. And I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, those type of schools, when you other somebody like that, or you put them in this category of, you know, well, you're not good enough to stay in like a, a regular school. So we're gonna put you in the alternative school where all the other bad kids go. It doesn't, I get the internalization of what you were talking about there and how that behavior is further perpetrated into adulthood. And um, they they never really learned from that. And now that I'm mm -hmm. thinking about it as a, as a kid, it's probably like, I'm like, okay, they're going to the bad school. But it's just like, that's not really setting them up for success now that no. I think about it. No, and I think that's really... A very common experience among the youth who go deeper into the system where either they were labeled as special ed or special class or behavioral disturbances, you know, a lot of pathology. Um, I, I remember the continuation school too. It was right behind the mainstream high school and everyone thought those kids were bad, you know. Those were the bad kids. Those were the kids who were messing up. You know, um, it, I think schools are a little more savvy, I would hope at this point to understand the labeling effect. Um, but, you know, there's also a huge backlash right now with the school safety issues and shootings, um, you know, to make schools once again, more military um all of that, the failed policies of the 90s. So we need to watch out for that, you know. Um, and and I'm not denying that teachers don't struggle with kids with behavioral problems. And I'm not, you know, there are real issues. Um, but if schools were more resourced to, to serve those children and families in a different way besides kicking them out or sending them to the, the bad school, quote unquote, um, I think we would have a lot less youth transitioning from, you know, continuation and probation schools to the to the youth justice system. Right. And I think that's why your second example is so important, because we do have to start investing that money into the resources to for them to be able to sustain and um to be able to become productive law-abiding citizens. It's just like you, I can't imagine, it's just like anything that we do. Like you can't go back into the same environment that is having unhealthy habits or that's just an unhealthy environment when you're trying to make change. And you may have made the changes being away, but when you're putting a circumstance of, uh, okay, well, I have to eat. So this is kind of what I have to do in order for me to eat or exactly. I have to have a place to live. Circumstance trumps any other consequences that come with that. 
Yeah, we, you know, in my work uh, following young people ethnographically uh, post-incarceration and post-youth justice, it's so varied how people survive. I mean, wow. Some youth have families they live with and they are still connected to those families and their families are a source of sustenance and, and, and calmness and a safe space. Um, and then some youth are just really on their own. You know, they're 18, they have no ties. They had been in foster care or their families don't want them back. Um, some youth feel have a that high school diploma or GED where they can go get a job or further their education. Some didn't finish anything. I mean, so the experiences are extremely varied. Um, but what I've found to be kind of the key or some one key to maintaining uh, motivation to stay out of the justice system is that combination of motivation, like it has to come from within somewhat, um, uh, support, having social supports and, and people around you to sustain those goals and um and then opportunity and that that structural opportunity um a lot of researchers have kind of gone back and forth is it you know is it motivation is it opportunity is it structure is it is it behavior or structure you know which a or b but we you know my work has kind of shown that it's not one or the other it's it's that luck in some ways that of matching up the motivation with support and structure and opportunity. And it's then the, for some, just not, not getting caught too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely agree. It's that, it's that overlap. Um, you kind of, because I feel like you can have all the support you need. And um, not take advantage of it. And not take advantage of it, or even have the opportunity, the opportunities available for that like I could just have support and no opportunities but and I mean the support feels great but if I don't have the opportunities to be actually out here to go able and facilitate change I mean how is that helpful <laughs> yeah I mean for example you know I've actually also seen um in in everyday desistance we we highlight a lot of different stories um but one of them in particular, we talk about a young man who really had had all of it, had motivation, had support, structure, opportunities, had a job, you know, but still wrong place, wrong time happened to be at a party like most young people like to go out. Um, and, you know, there was uh, got raided and he he got put put in jail for a few days, even though you know, on paper, that would be recidivism, right? That would be a failure. Um, But that really has no relationship with what he was actually doing, which was getting his gang tattoos removed, getting a job, settling down into a relationship, supporting himself, doing everything he could not to get in trouble, you know? So a lot of times... And you've probably seen this in your podcasts and in, and in your work. You know, we tend to really reduce these successes or failures to, um, okay, did they get rearrested? But that's not really the best indicator over time of a success or failure. Because I think, you know, what we point out in everyday desistance was some people were still doing involved in gangs and selling drugs and just didn't get caught (laughs) and others had these minor arrests or probation violations but were doing great otherwise so it's um you know that that was an interesting thing to come across in the research was how the official record didn't really match how people were trying to readjust and and get away from crime You know, speaking of just like readjusting and 
um, moving into that area, I was wondering, I know when you talk, when we talk about reentry, people can probably name at least two challenges, housing and employment. Boom. There we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but when we're talking about youth, are there specific challenges that they encounter that are different from people who are coming out of prison and the challenges that they encounter? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the I think all the same challenges are are present, you know, supporting oneself, furthering your education, employment, housing and employment by far are the two biggest and 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 economic sustainability. Like how are you going to support yourself, your children, your partner? Um, a lot of these young people also have children already that, you know, they're trying to support. Um, but I, the difference with the young people in, that, that I like to talk about is thinking about also overlaying that with transitioning to adulthood. So there's already a lot of tasks involved in that, in that um, space between becoming between being an adolescent and becoming an adult, you know, um, I have a 19 year old son, for example, and I'm always like, okay, you're setting up an apartment. You know, do you have, you have your bank account, you have your made sure you have a bath mat <laughs> or whatever it is, just, you know, being there and seeing my own son in this 19 year old space. Um, I'm seeing how he's both prepared for independence and not at the same time, right? Um, the the young people in my work and in the the, the youth that I've interviewed and, and worked with over the years, they're kind of catapulted into these adult roles and responsibilities coming out of the justice system. But doubly on top of that, without being totally adequately prepared. So that's kind of that paradox, right? So in addition to all of the responsibilities of reentry and all of the burdens of meeting your parole conditions or your probation conditions and staying away from substances, if that's your order, um, these are also young people just trying to figure out adulthood and adulting, right? And we know that that's not easy to do. Um, it's not easy to do as particularly if you don't have a strong support network of adults in your lives to help you get through that, you know? So um, the, all the things that we go through from 18 to 24, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? Where do I want to, you know, pursue my education? Um, how do I want to live my life? Who do I want to live my life with? You know, those are all looming questions for these youth too. So I think there's, again, similar challenges, but there's also this additional set of developmental tasks that complicates reentry. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, I'm 25 and. <laughs> and okay, you're just, you're still officially <laughs> transitioning. <laughs> yes, but I'm thinking about when I was in that, you know, that age range of 18 to 24. And like you saying, just this, moving into adulthood, how hard it was for me. And I feel like I have the support I need um, to be able to be prepared to come out here for this independency, to move to a whole nother state where I have no family. So I guess I'm like, I can't imagine trying to learn these developmental tasks that probably one, I haven't even thought of because I've been incarcerated and been trying to figure out this situation or all the circumstances that come with this. And then for me to be thrown out into this world and to understand a lease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very, um, it's very remarkable. I found how some of these young people are able to really juggle so much more than most of us could or were prepared to do. Uh, I think about one of the young men in, in the study um, who had you know, a kid and two on the way and was working from 5 a.m. to noon and then going to night school and in the meanwhile trying to come home and bring diapers and 
you know, at age 20, 21, you know, I think that's an incredible amount of juggling and balance all told to support yourself at that age fully and a family. Um, and we don't really give, you know, youth coming out of the justice system or the foster care system enough, I think, appreciation of how hard that is, but also supports to um, to really make, help them succeed and launch. And that's what I was sitting here thinking about, too, of like the resiliency that's built in those experiences, um, the resiliency that's fostered from just taking on so many roles like that. Um, mm-hmm. Just with all of those circumstances and to be able to come out here and sustain. And like you said, and that individual, they had so many roles. They were doing this, they were doing that. And that's hard. Um, I mean, it's just hard for me having a podcast, being a grad student, (laughs) being a daughter. (laughs) Exactly. And, um, you know, we've, you know, for a long time that um, we, or we've always in policy thought about extended foster care or not always, but in the last 20 years or so, there's been a push for more independent living skills, um, keeping kids on the foster care uh, benefits longer, um, having, you know, uh, home uh, places where people can live to learn independent living skills. Those similar youth are in the justice system, but we haven't, we don't offer that that type of benefit or service because, you know, the justice system is considered a punitive system, right? Whereas foster care is supposedly helpful, although that's debatable, Um, you know, but, and I don't know the extent to which extended foster care or independent living services are actually effective. Um, But what's interesting is, you know, we have kind of a set of policies to help young people transition to adulthood from that system, but not from the justice system. And I think more and more we're learning that this emerging adult period is important and that, you know, 18 to 24 year old men are the most likely to go into jail or prison, uh, especially if they have early justice involvement. And so we really need to be thinking more about that age group, you know, and what we can do. And then and great way to pivot to our next part of the conversation, <laughs> um, you know, thinking about those things and, you know, knowing that we know, like you said, this is a critical time period for these individuals. How, how, I guess, how should we be addressing these mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. Um, these concerns? Are there changes that need to be made compared to what we're doing now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the um one of the things we recommend so there's there's many back what can we do what can we do winding back there's been a lot of suggestions around keeping youth in the system in the juvenile justice system longer uh there's also been ideas about having like emerging adult court or probation uh specialized so there's been some trials of that program uh, I know that are happening in Orange County, California, um, and there's some good research going on. So I I know that programs are underway, like there's emerging adult projects and and other other pieces, um, trying to understand what we can do better. And I I think those efforts are wonderful. A couple of things that I recommend is one. A probation officer working with, um, you know, a young person transitioning out of the juvenile justice system has to be somewhat specially trained in that age group. So, you know, we can't this eight to 16 to 24, let's say what we're calling emerging adulthood now, you know, they're going to have different needs than a 12 year old or a 30 year old. Right. And so they also tend to make 
you know, because of their age, they're going to make more impulsive decisions or mistakes. So there has to be some room for um, some second chances, right? Probation tends to be very strict. You know, oh, you have a dirty drug test, you're going back to jail or you're, you violated your probation, right? That's not always an indicator that someone is necessarily not going on the right path, you know? So our justice system or our criminal legal system tends to be very um, cut and dry about what's a, what's a success and what's a failure. And in our research, we've really shown that it's not that clear cut. So somehow, I don't know how exactly, um, for probation officers to really do that more intensive casework, getting to know the person, um, you know, and to really understand how they're doing, not just based on some um, minor, some, some official definition of success or failure would be good. We also, I think, really suggest that if youth are coming out of the criminal legal system into adulthood, that they are offered um, and situated with housing, employment, you know, that they have more intensive case management um, to help people kind of um, get, make that bridge to adulthood being set up for success rather than failure. And now I'm using the terms that I don't like to use, but um, in, in other words, what are we doing to really help people navigate those challenges? Right now, not much. Um, and then the last piece is really about prevention because the ultimate goal is to obviously have a world where we don't need to have such a large criminal justice system or according, or some people would argue to not have any criminal legal system at all. Um, and you know, um, the the current shrinking of the youth justice system without compromising public safety shows us that that could happen with young adults and adults too, you know. Um, and so I think the trend of having just less people entangled in that system has to start with prevention, you know, and, and all those strategies that we think about providing for um, better education, putting those resources into youth development, into parks and rec, into opportunities for all youth to thrive. Making that gradual shift is very important, you know, and and, and the payoff will be big. It just takes a while. <laughs> and that's the thing about policies and structural things is they take a while. Yes, they um, do. They do. Something. We're not yeah, going to be able to do that tomorrow. Exactly. So that's why I kind of feel like in the interim, we need to develop a system that's more attuned to youth and, and youth development. That's kind of the interim step. And I think eventually thinking about shrinking and shrinking the system itself and reinvesting that money in in systems of care you know you can do both at at the same time right um i agree yeah mm -hmm. okay well now That's my pragmatic ask. approach <laughs> I, I love that i love it though because it makes sense it makes sense um so one of the things i want to ask you is when we're one because i guess like for the podcast, I really want the audience to be able to, you know, be engaged in and not engaged in listening to the podcast. Please do that, too. But engaged in their communities and engaged with the individuals that are going through this journey and the youth that are involved. So just thinking about we're talking about youth and we see them everywhere. They're in our schools. They're in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um they're mm -hmm. sitting next to us at the restaurant. What can we do as just like community members, um, neighbors, and, you know, other different patrons to support justice-involved youth or system-impacted youth? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I think getting involved in local elections and school boards, and it's actually really important. I, you know, there's a lot of policy decisions made on the local level about diversion programs, about funding for police, about funding for early ed and education. So 
on the macro level, I think staying attuned to those local elections, voting, um, you know, that that actually does matter sometimes more than we think it does. Um, in terms of volunteering and even direct contact with youth, I think people that want to make a difference, volunteering in schools, volunteering as tutors, um, and even just um, mentors, people that have been system impacted, I think make great, the better, the best mentors for youth who are at risk of falling into the system or who've been system impacted. Um, and then of course, in all states, and there's great advocacy organizations um, that, you know, there's legal aid, there's youth law center, there's, I mean, there's so many to list. Um, I couldn't list them all, but I think getting, you know, volunteering for any legal clinic representation, they're always struggling to get funds, you know, so there's volunteering, there's donating, but there's a lot of ways you can make a difference. And the there's also programs that go into youth facilities, then do art or writing programs. So um, finding those opportunities where you live um, makes a big difference. Yeah. So voting, volunteering, and um, also you know, keeping the belief that people can and do change and not not stereotyping or siphoning off people into, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, the bad kids, the good kids, you know, we have to kind of keep keep in mind and in our hearts that we know that everybody is capable of great things. And I think that's one thing that I will say is, well, not one thing, two things that is consistent of across like the people that I interview for my podcast is just this idea and this real idea of second chances and like giving grace to people. Um, we've all made a mistake somewhere in our life and we don't want to necessarily be defined by that mistake. And I imagine that that's the same thing for these individuals. And so I hear people consistently say that of just second chances and then, like you said, becoming involved, like just putting in that extra initiative to go out there and be a mentor, like you said, to mm -hmm. really understand who am I voting for and what do they think about juvenile justice? What are mm -hmm. the practices that they are trying to implement? And do I agree with those or not? Mm -hmm. And the local school boards, too, because yes. I think right now there's that's where you really can see a difference in perspective on school safety, on, you know, investments in equity and racial equity across schools in expense, suspension and expulsion policies. So really getting to know your school board candidates, uh, your city council, your county supervisors, you know, all of that does make a really big difference. I've seen that happen in Los Angeles with our current county uh, supervisors and they're really pushing youth development and diversion rather than you know continued law enforcement and probation monies so it's just it's a gradual shift um, but who who we have in office matters yeah I think those are all great recommendations and uh, I hope our audience like can really resonate with those and find some things that are in their communities or in their areas that is supportive of, you know, youth that are impacted by the system. But one thing I want to ask before we go, which I try to ask everybody, yeah. is, if there is one thing that you want the audience to remember about interacting, engaging with youth that are involved in the justice system, like what would be your final message? I thought you were going to ask that question. <laughs> I think in, in my experience, um, I'm coming from a background where I'm not system impacted and having spent a lot of time in carceral facilities and group homes and institutions and with lifers and all kinds of people who've been system impacted. Um, I think the message that I'd like to come across is that people are not defined by a behavior. People are not defined by their worst moment. Um, 
we don't want to be defined or I don't want to be defined by my worst times or behaviors or how I've treated people, but neither do people who've been incarcerated. And just because someone's been incarcerated doesn't mean that that they're any different from um, the love that we all have, the hope, um, our wish for a good life, our wish to be surrounded by people we love, to have a roof over our head, to have food and holidays and a family, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how to say that message in in 10 words or less. Um, but I think overall, it would be that let's all have the dignity and the sense of the worth of all humans to know that we're not all defined by our worst moment. I agree. And I think that like, that's a great place to end up just allowing second chances. Um, And like you said, not defining people by those mistakes. Um, But before we end off, I want to say thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and having these critical conversations um, with our audience and with me. Like it was truly a pleasure to have you here. (laughs) So I (laughs) hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm just, I can't wait to listen to all your podcasts, the whole series. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you. Um, Before we end off, I want to tell everyone to make sure you read the subscription at the bottom. Um, Dr. Abrams, social media handles for Twitter and Instagram will be there as well as her professional account. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to click the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at More Life The Reentry Podcast. Thank you.